funny, but it's true. What loneliness can do since I've been away. I have loved you more each day, walking back to happiness. Whoop oh yeah, yeah. Said goodbye to This is John DeFowl from John Sandoz Bookshop in Chelsea, London. For our first podcast of 2021, I'm delighted to bring you Juliet Nicholson to talk about her new book, Frostquake. Juliet is an old friend of the shop. She wrote our 2012 Cuckoo Press pamphlet, Memory and Desire, which was expanded into her subsequent book, A House Full of Daughters, about which she gave a talk in the shop. I should add that we are, of course, speaking now via Zoom because it's late January in the middle of lockdown. So, good morning, Juliet, and welcome to Virtual John Sandoz. Tell me, do you have snow where you are? I wish we had snow. Every morning I wake up, throw open my curtains and pray that it's going to be snowy because everybody else but us has got snow. We're in Sussex and um, it's supposed to be wintry weather. Actually, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking across at... uh, Dirk Bogard's Great Meadow. Oh. I can see it from where I sit. <laughs> and uh, great stories of Dirk Bogard in his wonderful memoir of that, of, that, that he named after the meadow, of, of tobogganing at great speed down that hill. In, and uh, at the moment, it is a brilliant, sunny, snow-free green. <laughs> well, <laughs> the book is entitled Frostquake. And the subtitle is The Frozen Winter of 1962 and How Britain Emerged a Different Country. So, what happened? What happened was on Boxing Day, just as the dusk was settling, the snow began to fall all over Britain. A great uh, storm had come over from Europe and it was um, coming on the back of really the last of the great smogs which had taken place in in Britain um, throughout most of December 1962. And it was uh, these fogs known as smogs were so dense that you couldn't see your hand in front of you and were incredibly Um, uh, uh, powerful in affecting lungs and many, many people died. And oddly enough, the streets of London were full of people, if they did venture out, wearing masks. It was a completely familiar uh, sight to see people swaddled up in their scarves, but also in, in, uh, in... proper medical masks to stop the horrible uh, effects of this polluted, it was from pollution, it, it came, the smog came from the great amount of uh, coal fires that were burning in London. And the following year, um, the uh, Anti-Pollution Act came in and uh, stopped quite such excessive burning of, of coal. So this was the last of the London particulars in the December and so Britain had already uh, faced itself up against pretty ghastly weather. And then 
on Boxing Day, the snow began to fall and it fell and it froze and it fell and it froze and it did not stop falling and freezing for 10 weeks. And the effect of the weather on the population was bizarrely uh, reflective of the effect that we are having now, which is effectively that people were in lockdown. Roads were impassable, airports were closed, trains couldn't run on their icy tracks, uh, delivery lorries couldn't deliver food, um, and people were stuck in their houses, unable to visit those that they loved or escape those that they perhaps <laughs> to be stuck with. So uh, how did people get their food? How, um, there were perhaps more local shops then than there are now, but even so, there must have been an immense quantity of people cut off. Yes, I mean, there were uh, deliveries made um, in the very most remotest parts of, 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 of say, Dartmoor, where helicopters came and, and, and dropped provisions. But in the countryside, uh, people had stores of potatoes and apples and things that they'd kept in the summer. But also the, uh, the remoteness of some of these places made, made life extremely difficult. And the wastage of food too, because uh, quite near where I live here in, in, in Sussex, there was a farm that regularly just threw away all their supplies of milk because the milk collection lorries could not uh, reach the, the churns to pick them up. So the snow all around these fields in, in Sussex became suddenly yellow, yellowed by the creamed milk that was poured into the snowy, snowy landscape. And in London, um, as far as the milk was concerned, uh, the milkmen were incredibly ingenious and uh, took to their skis to deliver the milk in the back of their lorries. So people, as they do, as human beings do, they find ways to cope, but it was tough. And um, you say the roads were blocked and railways and so forth. How, how well equipped or prepared were they for this appalling uh, onslaught of snow? Did they expect it? Uh, no, I mean, it's famous that Britain is incapable of, of coping with it, with, with bad weather. I mean, even now, you know, nearly 60 years later, a snowstorm, and it's, it's the headline news. Whereas, I mean, in New, New York, for example, as soon as, as soon as it starts to snow, out come the ploughs, just very efficiently clear the streets, and everything carries on normal, and no one really talks about it, um, apart from, you know, chucking the odd snowball. Um, but in Britain, we've just never been very good at it. And there were questions in the House of Lords, even then, saying, you know, really, we must get our act together. It, it, the, the, in that, in the, that particular winter of 62 to 63, the fall of the snow coincided with a, a very um, serious go slow by the electrical unions. And so not only was the electrical grid uh, being demanded, having much more demand placed upon it 
but also um, this go slow so that you never knew whether you were going to have your um, electric, electrical power just closed down. Babies so the, were born by candlelight in hospitals. Rather uh, beautiful. This, uh, precisely at the point where people needed their fuel, there was an appalling strike at the same time, strikes and go slows, which were, remained unresolved through most of the period. Uh, certainly through January and into February, yes. Yeah. Um, at the very worst point of the, of the snow. And at, simultaneously to that, inevitably, uh, pipes burst. Of course. So, also, uh, a shortage of water. And I, I, I mean, I was, I was eight during this particular winter. And I remember it with intense clarity, as one does when things happen. And we lived um, partly in the country and partly, I was at school in London, not far from John Sandal, down at the other end of the King's Road. And uh, I remember standing with our kettle and our hot water bottles and any saucepan and any container that we could lay our hands on to fill up from the standpipe. It was a queue, just as I've seen these queues now for people yes. getting their vaccinations. It seems long queues. There were long queues to get your water. It seems such a remote experience in certain ways. The, the lack of fuel, the lack of water. Um, and we think of our own lockdowns in the, last, in the course of the last year to have been without such things or for them to be in any way unreliable would add a, a dimension to recent lockdowns, present lockdown, that seem absolutely unmanageable, awful. Um, and yet they did manage at the time. And, and another thing that I wonder about is to what extent there was businesses collapsed. Um, you talk of go slows, that there must have been appalling hardship in businesses. Um, was the government help? Um, well, there was uh, a severe, severe unemployment. The prime minister was Harold Macmillan, conservative government, um, that had been uh, in place since the 50s, a sort of post-war time government, um, and an old Etonian uh, public schoolboy-ish type of a government. And uh, they were um, aghast at this weather coming and imposing a sort of further strain on the workforce, on, on, on the wider population, on top of what they were just emerging from, which was this um, terror that there might be a third world war. That was the, and of course, what is named, known as the Cold War. So this coldness, this great Russian threat that had um, reached its zenith in um, the Cuban Missile Crisis in the October of 1962, was still lurking and lingering. And thus the sense of spies under the bed and the precariousness of our nation at the threat of the atom bomb was something that had filtered through the country in the autumn before and remained very prevalent. It was a sort of conversation that my parents were having all the time, sort of 
whispering it, but I remember it terribly carefully, terribly, mm. terribly mm. well, terribly detailed. This, mm. and so the sort of whole um, impact of the actual coldness of the weather of those three months coming on top of this national fear and a rather unconfident making government mm. sort of fed into a national psyche of nervousness and yet there was other stuff going on that was well, to you um, have these metaphors running through of uh things under the ice and under the, and snowdrops under the ground um and from these metaphors you sort of home in then on particular phenomena or sequence of events which uh represent for you things which had been frozen and then emerge for example the the two obvious examples well there are perhaps three really prevalent examples one is the beatles one is sylvia plath and one is the perfumer affair the three on the face of it distinct phenomena which are brought together in your book um because of this winter um will you give us a quick rundown on on what those are doing together why they're how they find themselves into the same book. It's really interesting that they do. And what, in what other circumstances would you get those three in, in the same book? Well, when I, when I started to research this book, um, I had no idea that I was going to come across such an extraordinary intensity of events and um people that are yes now even now wholly familiar famous stories to us and the sort of synchronicity of this seemed to me partly to do with the paralysis that had been um imposed on us by this weather only partly but it was a very strange thing that in only 10 weeks this unknown band at unknown outside liverpool or in the, in the clubs in the north around liverpool almost unknown had through sheer tenacity gutsiness braving the weather traveling between these uh, music halls and concert halls, first of all in the north, and then hooking up with this young teenage singer called Helen Shapiro, who was the top of the pops at the time, hooking up on her nationwide tour as number five in the billing order of her, of her programme. And so they came along with Helly so, Shapiro. This is in January, is it? In, ja in, in February, in actually February. in February. They actually started in February with, with Heli, Helen Shapiro, who was 16 years old, <laughs> number one, with a, with, a, with a song called Walking Back to Happiness. <laughs> and she um, had been persuaded to take the Beatles as part of her running, her, her tour.
And of course, gradually as they went from um, concert hall to concert hall, they were singing. Uh, they had a they had a they had a single. It was called "Please Please Me." And gradually, as they went from concert to hall to concert hall, the shouts and sort of enthusiasm, not yet screaming, but definitely cheering and clapping for Heli began to diminish as it began to grow <clears throat> for these four. They were in their 20s. They were so they were 20. They were 21, John, Paul, George and Ringo. And they had these amazing haircuts that looked like a sort of um, grenadiers, Busby, uh, had sort of, sort of almost hiding their eyebrows. And they laughed and they sang and they brought absolute, utter, exhilarating joy to everybody who heard them. And so gradually, poor Heli sunk down and down in the charts as the Beatles began to rise. Um, but it wasn't easy, you know, it wasn't a shoo-in. They were in a van traveling through the Pennines. These in the snow. terrifying icy roads. Icy roads in the snow and presumably freezing halls. Freezing halls. They had to jump up and down for body heat. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely, definitely. If you look at some of the movie footage of that time, they never stopped jumping up and down. Uh, and so this was just um, what everybody needed during this depressing time, this dark winter, this expression of joy and youthfulness just caught on. And another, there was another thing going on before I talk about Perfumer or Sylvia Plath. Another, there was another thing going on, which was the television set. And uh, if you can't go out and see your friends, if you can't go to the pub because it's too cold to get there, the roads are impossible, the television set, which was pretty new even then in the early 1960s, became an absolute sort of honeypot mm. for people to gather around. And there was a, two programmes that were extremely important at the time, the most popular programmes. One was Thank Your Lucky Stars, on which the top bands and the up and coming bands, more importantly, appeared. And the other programme was uh, the satirical programme, That Was The Week That Was, uh, which was also run. David Frost was the presenter and he was also 22, I think. So this youthful, um, star of this satirical program for which an, an average audience of 12 million people tuning in million. to watch a 21 or two year old yeah i mean there wasn't you know we obviously there weren't that many television channels there was itv but there were and there was bbc one and bbc two there were there were three channels and it came on top of this uh, magazine private eye that had been launched about a year earlier by four friends, um, Peter Cook and Dud Peter Cook, um, Alan Bennett, and so on, Willie Rushton, um, which was basically looked like a sort of undergraduate magazine printed in in in, in sort of lavatory paper, 
quality, but was um, viciously witty in its uh, attempt to expose the iniquities of society. And nobody was exempt, even the Queen, perhaps especially the Queen, the <laughs> church, and above all, politics. And so this satirical movement um, and the television programme that accompanied it uh, on, on the BBC um, hit a nerve, arrived at the right moment when people were in lockdown, in bored, in front of their, captured in front of their television sets and ready for change. So in, in this moment of frozen uh, outside and paralysis in the country, everybody was glued to their televisions watching that was the week that was and hearing if not seeing private eye hearing about it and then long come the beatles to sing their way out of this moment and at the same time you you talk about sylvia plath and you use that perhaps partly as a way of talking about new generation of poetry her and ted hughes um, but also about sexual attitudes in the period. So that comes also into Profumo. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the old poets, the old poet that winter, uh, T.S. Eliot was extremely unwell. He had uh, very bad lungs. And he was uh, in hospital that winter, partly because of the smog and the cold. Uh, and uh, Edith Stitchwell was, was dying. These old poets were dying. And these new poets, uh, particularly Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, although she wasn't known that winter, but my goodness, she was writing. It is quite obviously one of the most heartbreaking stories of that winter. The sort of paradox being that the lockdown, the aloneness and her despair released this exhilarating energy. That, that's what's so interesting is, is this paradox which you bring out in several areas of, of in Plath's case, despair and, it, and bursting into creativity and in an... Uh, another context it's uh, the, the political context you have the old establishment cold war um grubby affair of of, of what happened at clifton and not so much the affair but the way in which it was interpreted and treated and managed by the powers that be um and how that, when it was resolved, um, released the country almost into a new way of looking at um, a, a different kind of social behaviour. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it, uh, the Profumo affair reached its crescendo, really, in the summer of 1963. But all the way through the winter of 1963, everybody knew, in quotes, whether it was in the sort of London club, everybody in the establishment knew 
that John Trofumo was lying when he said that he hadn't. Uh, but somehow or other, he was still under this sort of protective care of the prime minister and the old boys network. And on top of that, unlike what we have today, which is um, a press, some might argue, too open, too explorative, too, too, too uh, revealing of people's secrets. Here was a press that was still living under the fear of, um, of libel. So this rumbling, rumor, truth-denying, um, old boy network maintenance was, was, was uh, filtering through those snowy weeks with various kind of um, sort of, uh, sort of what appeared to be red herring stories to do with Christine Keeler and her best friend, Mandy Rice Davis, uh, having ha had a kind of strange shooting incident with a couple of um, dope smoking Jamaicans who lived in Notting Hill. Uh, which seemed to be unconnected, but in fact were absolutely part of this rotten uh, campaign in which to discredit Christine Keeler for the sake of protecting dishonest politicians. And the combination of the regular press and the satirical movement itself implying, hinting, innuendo, doing all they can to try to bring oxygen into this story. And finally, it erupted in the House of Commons itself um, when uh, uh, the Labour Party, who has just newly been taken over by this pipe-smoking, gabardine-max-wearing uh, northerner, Harold Wilson, allowed the, the sort of the truth to be actually asked about in Parliament is a very different time now we than, than we live in now, which is part of my point, which is that things shifted. Lives were no longer going to be accepted. Prejudice against women uh, was going to be, if not sorted out, at least exposed. And the same thing with homosexuality, with racism. So they all, the homosexuality, racism, sexism, they suddenly burst into, a, uh, they, they, they suddenly were exposed and enabled to be exposed in the press after in the months following this extreme lockdown. And um, you, you described that extremely well by bringing these separate phenomenon together. Now, do you think that there is any connection between the two? And how, how do you think that in, in your own mind, how does that apply to now? Do you, do you see similar patterns? Are you interested in looking for patterns of that kind? I think that first of all, um, you know, how much of a case can one argue for, and it just one season of 10 weeks of snow affect monumental change in society, these profound uh, inequities suddenly wiped out. Of course, that didn't happen. But there was, as there was with the snow, a gradual melting. 
I mean, I was finishing writing this book during the first lockdown and the, the, the canals in Venice were suddenly running clear. You could yes. see fish in the canals in Venice, first time in anyone's living memory. I only had to look up over the sky and see that the fact that Gatwick was no longer operating was that the birds and the outline even of the trees were clearer, sharper, that a good thing was happening. And so I found in that, that a pause, whether created by weather or a virus, even a Spanish flu a hundred years earlier, even dare I say it, a world war, that out of it, after the First World War, women had been campaigning for the vote for all those years. They got it in 1919. Good can come out of these imposed periods of contemplation, which we may not like at all. And it's the rumbling on of the virus and the uh, insolubility of it at the moment is clearly desperate. But there will be an end to it. And out of that ending, there may come good. On that note, it was wonderful. Can I say thank you? <laughs> um, the book is available at 1899, Frostquake by Juliet Nicholson, and she has signed some booklets for us. And so there are signed copies available. Juliet, thank you very much for your time.